The following audio is from Fellowship Baptist Church in Nederland, Texas. Our mission, to make and mature disciples through the gospel of Jesus Christ. For more information about Fellowship, visit fellowshiptx.org. Pastors and staff, we spend time during the week preparing for service, and we spend time making the most optimal conditions for worship. I don't know if you knew that or not. We spend time throughout the week doing that, and you know we put a lot of thought into it. We don't want it to be too hot in here because then people would be uncomfortable and not want to come and worship. We don't want it to be too cold. Although sometimes it does feel pretty cold in here. Uh, We're in southeast Texas. We don't want it to be too cold because then, you know, it wouldn't be the optimal temperature for worship and maybe some people wouldn't come. And we try and make sure that the words are big enough on the screen for everybody to read along. Because sometimes when they're not, some people don't choose to worship because of that. And even the songs we choose are all based on the optimal conditions for worship. Now, don't get me wrong. Don't, don't misunderstand me. We choose songs that glorify God and that are biblically sound to sing about who he is. But even in that, that if we, we sing a song and it isn't received well by the congregation, which is you and I, then we don't do that song again. It's not optimal for worship. But what is worship anyways? What is worship? How would you define worship? Well, the way I would define worship is worship is an act in which we give ourselves sacrificially to something else. Worship is an act in which we give ourselves sacrificially to something else. What we like to say in church world is time, talent, treasure. Where we invest our time, where we invest our talent, and where we invest our treasure usually replicates what we worship. In other words, let's say that I have a hot rod that I'm spending a lot of time, a lot of my talent, and a lot of my money building, and and, and everything revolves around that. Let's say that, for instance. Then, in essence, I am worshiping that thing because this is where I invest all of my time my talent, and my treasure. Some people, it's a job. Some people, their jobs, they worship their jobs. They spend all of their time, their talent, and even investing with overtime and everything else and and making that job what it is. I don't know whether it's to provide a nest egg for later or make any excuse, but when we can get so focused on that 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 can become our worship, and no doubt about it, that can happen to me too, right? That I can get so invested in my job, not as much as a minister, but in my job here at the church, that I can worship the job rather than worshiping the creator. It can happen. What about our families? Sometimes our families can become our point of worship. And it seems like that sometimes when you have little ones running around and that's kind of consuming you. But the Bible warns against that. That we should not worship our family unit, right? Obviously, we have to spend time, (laughs) talent, and treasure on our family. 
but it should not be the singular focus for us. And so worship, it's where we invest our time, our talent, and our treasure. Look at what Paul says in Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. He says, therefore, brothers and sisters, in view of the mercies of God, I urge you to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. That is your true worship. Do not be conformed to this age, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may discern what is the good, pleasing, and perfect will of God. Look at what Paul says in Romans. The perfect will of God is for you and I to live sacrificially in worship to him. He says that is true worship. That when we sacrifice who we are and come to God with that, that's what that true worship is. He says, sacrifice everything you are and everything you have, that's true worship. Worship is a sacrifice and what we sacrifice our lives to. That's what we give our time, talent, and treasure to, to God, hopefully sacrificially. Now, it's not about us. Can we agree on that? I'll say that till I'm blue in the face every sermon if I get the chance. It's not about us. It's all about him. It's all about God. It never has anything to do with us. And there should never have to be an optimal condition for us to be able to worship. I want to repeat that. There should never have to be an optimal condition for us to be able to worship the Almighty God. All right? So let's keep that in our minds. Uh, And we're going to be in Acts chapter 16 this morning. Acts chapter 16. We're going to learn a little bit about worship. We're going to learn from the pros about worship. So last week, Daniel was in Acts chapter 14, and he talked about how Paul and Barnabas were uh, aggressively giving the gospel and taking the gospel, the gospel, and they met opposition. You remember that? And because of the opposition, they stayed there, and they preached to everybody, and they kind of dug their heels in. And, and the last point that Daniel left us with was that they were relentless with the gospel, right? They were relentless with the gospel. They were going everywhere they could, preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ and what we know as Paul's first missionary journey. And, it, and just shortly after that, in verse 14, it shows that Paul, because of this opposition, gets stoned. They stone him almost to death. They actually drag him out of the city gate and leave him for dead. They didn't think he was breathing. He was so beaten to a bloody pulp by them stoning him that they thought he was dead. It says the disciples gathered around him. Paul pops up. I don't know how that works, whether he was limping or not. But it was a bad deal for him. And then, he gets to, and then he gets to Jerusalem, and they start going over this uh, Gentile equality, right? Whether Gentiles are able to serve God without doing all the Jewish regulations. And chapter 15 is all about them kind of hashing all that out. And I didn't want to get into all that because we can pretty much paraphrase it. There's some theological things in there, but that's kind of the, the idea of what's going on. Well, Paul and Barnabas have a little riff, right? If you remember reading in Acts, him and John, uh, Paul and Barnabas have John Mark as their companion. John Mark had left them at some point in the first missionary journey. And when it comes time to do another journey, Paul, uh, Barnabas says, hey, let's go grab John Mark and we can get on. And Paul says, no, 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 no. I don't want John Mark. John Mark left us. This whole thing never really got, uh, really never got closure because Paul went one way, Barnabas went another, and Paul picks up Silas, 
as being his new partner in ministry. And so that's kind of where we are. We're in Acts chapter 16. Paul and Silas are now out on their second missionary journey. And they come across the city of Philippi. And they're kind of staying there a few days, it says, at the house of Lydia. And they go out and they're preaching. And this slave girl approaches them. And she has a demon inside. It says she has the spirit of fortune telling. So this demon, this familiar spirit, speaks through this young woman, and, and, and she is able to tell the fortune. And it says that she has owners, and these owners make money off of her, right? She'll go and tell fortunes, and then since she's owned by somebody else, she then brings that money back to her owners. Paul literally gets annoyed by her because she's hounding on them, following them, hounding on them, and he casts the evil spirit out. And it says that these men who own her are upset about that because now they can no longer monetize that she is, was uh, demon-possessed. And they, they get the crowd all riled up, and that's where we find ourselves, right here. Acts 16, 22 through 24. It says, the crowd joined in the attack against them. Now they have all of the crowds against them. And, and the chief magistrates stripped off their clothes and ordered them to be beaten with rods. After they had severely flogged them, they threw them in the jail, ordering the jailer to guard them carefully. Receiving such an order, he put them in the inner prison, and he secured their feet and their stocks. <laughs> Have you ever had a bad day that you just will never forget? Amen? Now, I bet if I was to ask each and every one of you, hey, tell me about the worst day in your life, you would know what day that is. We all have those days. We all have those days where it is the worst possible day of our life. We'll never forget it. We'll never forget that it happened. And we can tell you with great detail what happened that day because it's burned into the memory of our brain. Is that right? Sometimes we have these really bad days. I want to say that this is probably a really bad day for Paul and Silas. This is one of those days where that memory is burned into their minds. Because it says that they brought them in, they beat them, they flogged them so bad, they beat them, and then they threw them in jail into stocks, it says, where their feet and their hands would be fastened. They're doing everything right, and their situation doesn't seem to be getting any better, right? They're out, they're doing what the Lord has commanded, they're preaching the gospel, and it doesn't look like the outcome is going to be any good for them. They get thrown in prison and they're beaten. But then at midnight, they begin to worship. Let's continue reading. 1625. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. Suddenly there was a violent earthquake and the foundations of the jail were shaken and immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's chains came loose. When the jailer woke up and saw the doors of the prison standing open, he drew his sword and was going to kill himself since he thought the prisoners had escaped. But Paul called out in a loud voice, don't harm yourself because we're all here. The jailer called for lights, rushed in and fell down trembling before Paul and Silas. He escorted them out and said, sirs, what must I do to be saved? They said, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him along with everyone in his house. He took them in the same hour of the night and washed their wounds. Right away, he and all of his family were baptized. 
he brought them into his house, set a meal before them, and rejoiced because he had come to believe in God with his entire household. <laughs> what an yeah, that's right, amen. What an, amazing, what an amazing situation here. Here's Paul and Silas, and they're doing the work of God. They're going out, and they're doing the great commission the way the Lord Jesus has laid it out for them to do. And people are getting saved, and things are working. Then as they're doing the work that, that's commissioned, they get beaten and thrown in prison. See, the work they were doing was not for the faint of heart. There was opposition everywhere they came across, and they knew that, and they were still willing to go out and to do what God had commanded them to do. Even though Paul had almost been killed by being stoned, even though Paul was now in jail in stocks, he was not allowing that to dictate his worship. What would be our response in that situation? Have you ever thought about that? Like, let me put myself in Paul's shoes for just a second, and let's say somebody comes at me and beats me and throws me in a prison, and, 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 and all for the sake of the gospel. Yeah, I imagine you would. No, I'm joking. Uh, so, so, so that would be horrible. That would be a horrible day, right? It would be worse than the worst day that came to our minds when we thought about it. Would it not? Would it not? I've never had that bad of a day. And now we're all going to have bad days, and we know that, right? We know we're going to have bad days, and sometimes we're even ready for it. But it's those, like, unexpected bad days that really take us for a loop, don't they? Uh, Paul and Silas, they know they're going to have opposition, and they're going out and they're preaching, and then, bam, he rebukes that spirit, and all that turns into what's going on now. And it's not the challenges we expect that put us in a state of emergency or desperation. It's ultimately those we do not expect. Would you agree with that? The ones that catch us blindsided. These unexpected and unwelcome challenges can place us in desperation, which then prove who we are in these times. When that unexpected thing comes and your life is flipped upside down as a Christian this morning, what we do in those moments is what defines the God that we serve. What we do in those moments defines the God that we serve. And I think we can learn a lot from this text and what can happen when we decide to turn our most troubled moments and the moments of despair into an effective witness for our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen? All right, so I got three points, and then we're going to be done. We're going to be out of here early this morning. Three points. <laughs> I can't promise that. But three points, and we'll be out of here. Number one point, when you find yourself in desperate times, when you find yourself in desperate times, our circumstance should not determine our worship. Our circumstance should never determine our worship. Paul and Silas, they come to Philippi and they're sharing the gospel of Jesus with excitement. And they've been sharing the gospel and encouraging those all throughout that region. And people are getting saved. And I'm sure they expected some degree of difficulty in their mission. However, they might not have envisioned it going this way. But they did expect a certain degree of difficulty. Paul, in Acts chapter 14 that we didn't get to, 14.22, it says this. He says, uh, strengthening the disciples by encouraging them to continue in the faith and by telling them it is necessary to go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God. 
So there is always an expected amount of challenge and difficulty in life. And then there are the unexpected trials, right? Paul says there, he's encouraging the and he says, listen, there's going to be a degree of difficulty for you to enter the kingdom of God. The reason he's saying that is because of the persecution that was brought about them at this time. He's saying if you're a professor, things are going to come unexpected when you just don't expect it at all. I mean, that's unexpected, right? It's like whenever you first pay that car off and then the transmission breaks. <laughs> I've had that happen to me before. Uh, you, you know, uh, think of that kind of situation. Everything could be going good, and then unexpectedly, you find yourself in this troublesome moment. And rather give up in defeat, they committed their way to the Lord. Paul and Silas committed their way to the Lord. Look at verse 25. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening. Committing your way to the Lord is difficult in these times. It's difficult. In times of distress, in times of difficulty, when circumstances are tough, it is very difficult to commit your way to the Lord. But our circumstances, again, should never determine our worship. Our circumstances should not determine our worship. Paul and Silas suffered uh, brutality and are now held in inner prison, which would be dark, damp, and cold. Listen, we have the hindsight of looking back and seeing that they got out of this whole mess, right? So put yourself in the thick of it at 11.30 that night, and they're not crying, okay? They're not whining. They are singing praises to God in this deep, dark, cold prison after they've been stripped of their clothes, so they're naked, and they've been beaten with rods, and so they're bloodied and battered, without any bandages on their wounds, and they are praising God. Hope was not lost. How amazing is that? That hope was not lost. Look at Lamentations 3, verses 21 through 24. This is kind of was their mindset. This I recall to my mind, therefore I have hope. The Lord's loving kindnesses indeed never cease, for his compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I have hope in him. In their most trying time, Paul and Silas had hope in God because God never fails. This was their worship. This was, they, they did not allow the severity of what was going on to then hinder the worship onto an almighty God. How amazing is that? How amazing. I, I envy that, right? That when you're going through the deepest, darkest moments of your life and you feel like there is no hope in sight, we can know that God's mercies are new every morning and he is who we put our hope in and not that of ourselves. Amen? Because remember, it's all about him. It's all, and this isn't an empty hope. But it's a hope that is sure, a hope that provides and sustains, a hope that brings about worship to a holy God. Look at Romans chapter 5, verse 2 through 5. We exalt in the hope of the glory of God, and not only this, but we also exalt in our tribulations, knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance, and perseverance proving character, and proving character hope. 
and this hope does not disappoint. When your hope is in him, when your hope is in God, you can walk through any situation that comes your way. When your hope is in man, then you are left to your own abilities, and that is not a hope that sustains. That's not a hope that sustains. When your hope is in man, you can only trust what you see. When your hope is in man, you can only trust what you see. When your hope is in God, you trust what you cannot see. That's faith. That is faith. Trusting in him, uh, trusting in man, I'm sorry, trusting in man will disappoint you 10 times out of 10. Every time. Because there is no hope in man. Because man is flawed and man is imperfect. But God is not flawed and God will never disappoint. Paul and Silas could have approached this a different way, could they have not? They could have tried to bribe the jailer, right? They could have tried to call somebody or, you know, get message to somebody to get them out. Paul and Silas could have hit their knees praying for God to get them out of there to save them from what was about to happen the next day. Now, although God did save them, that's not what they prayed for, right? It doesn't show that in this text. It says that they were singing hymns of praises to God. They were allowing their situation to then turn around and glorify God for who he was or who he is. And just like Paul would say in Romans that these tribulations and these, uh, these trials were then going to lead to perseverance and hope in God. They weren't praying for a rescue because that wasn't on the forefront of their mind. Glorifying God was on the forefront of their mind. Their hope was in the Lord and peace was found in the midst of a dark hour even in the troubled circumstances that they found themselves in. What an encouragement to us that in the time of trial and in the time of darkness in our own lives, we can place our hope and our trust in Jesus Christ because that ultimately glorifies God. I didn't say the outcome glorifies God because the outcome will change from time to time. You know, Paul was beheaded later by Nero. God did not save him that time. Peter was crucified upside down in Jerusalem, and God did not save him that time either. James, by this point, had already been killed and murdered, and God did not save him. And so we don't praise God in the outcome, but we praise God in the middle of the storm and in the middle of the situation to glorify him no matter the outcome. Does that make sense? And no matter the outcome. If our hope is in the Lord, we have confidence in his plan trusting that he is good. They prayed and they sang to the Lord and that was their strength. Not the outcome. We need our soul strengthened in difficult times and the key is responding with faith and hope. Look at Psalm 63, 6 through 8. I meditate on you in the night watches for you have been my help. And in the shadow of your wings, I sing for joy. My soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. I mean, who in the world feels like praising when you come into a time of tribulation like that? Wouldn't it be very difficult, to say the least, that as you're beaten and battered, 
and you don't know what's going to happen to sing praises to God. And I can imagine, and maybe that's why I was so moved this morning, I can imagine this song we sang this morning, Oh, There's Nothing Better Than You. That song being sang from the lips of people being persecuted and beaten, beaten in prison. Not, Lord, save me from this situation. Not, Lord, what did I do to deserve this? It says, oh, there's nothing better than you. You turn graves into gardens, right? That if I die, then I'm glorified with Jesus Christ after that because of the resurrection. What a hope in that. To be singing that in the middle of a trial, in the middle of desperation, that is true worship. Because there is no one better than God, amen? There's nothing better than him. As Paul and Silas are placed in the inner jail with their feet fastened, they're bloody. And I can imagine the type of song they would be singing, a song of praise. Paul would later write in a letter to the church of Philippi, chained to a guard. Remember, he's in Philippi here. Later, he's going to write back to, a Philipp to the Philippian church, and he is in prison at that moment as well. Not knowing if he would be befriended or beheaded by Caesar, he writes this. Philippians 4, 4 through 6. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. Let your gentle spirit be known to all men. The Lord is near. Be anxious for nothing but in everything by prayer and supplication. With thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. He's in prison writing this. He's in prison writing this back to the Philippian church who saw him and Silas beaten and battered in prison and be saved by God. How amazing is that? That they did not allow their circumstance to dictate the outcome of their worship. Number two. Number two and a really important part of this whole thing is that God can use your situation. When desperate times come, God can use your situation to glorify himself. In difficulty, it's critical to realize that God can use your situation. How he will use it and what he will use it for is likely outside of the walls you feel stuck within. God is a God who thinks outside of the box. And sometimes when we're in the deepest, darkest parts of our life, we don't see him coming through the way he does, right? That God is a mysterious God. Think of Joseph. You remember Joseph in the Old Testament? He sees these dreams and his brothers, they get all upset with him and jealous and they take him out to the field and they're going to kill him. They throw him in this pit. Remember, his dad had put this coat on him because he's his favorite son. And, and, and one of the brothers talks him out of it. He says, don't kill him, don't kill him, let's sell him. And so, so Joseph goes from a desperation of a pit, about to be murdered, to then being sold into slavery to these Egyptians, ends up in Potiphar's house. God blesses him. He's like Potiphar's number two guy, although he's a slave. And then Potiphar's wife tries to have an affair with him, and it says he flees out naked. That's how aggressive she was towards him. And, and Potiphar probably knows that it wasn't Joseph's fault, but he can't do anything else but throw him in prison again. So here goes, Potiphar, here goes Joseph. He gets thrown in prison. It just seems like the situations go from bad to worse to worse. He's in prison, and he, and he interprets these dreams for the people in prison. 
And one of the guy's dreams come true, or they both come true. And he, he says, when I get out, I'm going to tell everybody about you. And then three years later, he remembers, right? But this whole Old Testament story leads to the fact that Joseph was supposed to be, Potter, uh, was supposed to be Pharaoh's right-hand man when the famine came, so that way he could save his family from the famine later. God used all of these trials and all of these circumstances in Joseph's life to then appoint him number two in Egypt so he could save the day, but he had to go through the trouble first. Does that make sense? God can use your circumstance, whatever it is, whichever circumstance you find yourself in, in the darkest, deepest depths of your soul, and God can use that for his glory on the other side. That's amazing. That's amazing that we serve a God that can do that. Paul and Silas are not in prison just for the sake of being in prison. God is going to use their situation for his glory. All right. And the song that you sing in the time of distress matters. The song you sing in the time of distress matters. Look at Colossians 3, 2 and 3. It says, set your mind on the things above, not on the things of earth. For you have died to your life and is hidden with Christ in God. You never know who might be listening or watching in your time of worship. When those dark days come and those trials hit you so hard and the song you sing matters, you don't know who's going to be watching or who's going to be listening and how that will affect their lives. How you approach troubles in this world has an impact on those around you especially for those who do not know the Lord. Our testimony should be such that when the toughest times come in our lives, that's when our worship is elevated. When the toughest times come in our life and when, and when there seems to be no hope in sight, our hope is in Jesus Christ. And that circumstance determines our worship for God in a positive way. And people will see that and then God will be glorified on the other end. God is a God of purpose. God does nothing without there being a purpose for it. So as Paul and Silas are in this prison, God is up to something. And when desperation comes in your life, God is up to something. And the reason may not be what we can see now, but what happens on the outcome. Listen to what happens to this prisoner. After the prison doors are opened and the jailer is responsible to oversee the prison, he prepares to end his life. Look at Acts, we're at 16, 26, and 27. Suddenly there was a violent earthquake and the foundations of the jail were shaken and immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's chains came loose. When the jailer woke up and saw the doors of the prison standing open, he drew his sword and was going to kill himself since he thought the prisoners had escaped. If you remember a while back in Acts, we read about the same kind of instance as Peter, right? However, the guards weren't so lucky. Peter escapes. They were going to execute Peter the next day. And because Peter had escaped, they threw all of the jailers and their family members and, and they executed them instead. So that case then should show us that Paul and Silas could have been executed the very next day. 
They're beaten with rods. They're thrown in the inner prison. They're going to be executed. And as God saves them from this catastrophe, he shakes those prison walls. The chains are broken. This guard knows they're all going to flee and I'm dead the next day. And so instead of getting to that moment, he draws his sword and gets ready to take his own life. But here was their reason that God knew that this jailer would be working on that shift in that night. And, and, and God knew that Paul and Silas would be beaten and beaten with rods and thrown into that inner prison with that jailer over them. And he used their situation to reach his life. You may be in the middle of the most difficult time of your life, but how are you going to use this for an opportunity to glorify God on the other end? Who is watching your life right now? Who is watching you in the darkest moments and needs to be saved and glorify God on the other end? That's what happens here because glory comes from pain. That's number three. Glory comes from pain. Look at Acts uh, 16, 30 through 33, the rest of the, the narrative. He escorted them out. This is the jailer. And said, sirs, what must I do to be saved? They said, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of God, uh, the word of the Lord to him along with everyone in his house. He took them in the same hour of the night and washed their wounds. Right away, he and all his family were baptized. You ever heard of the expression, no pain, no gain? Like if you're in the gym and you're not feeling it, <laughs> You ain't got no gain, son. It ain't coming. It's got to burn. That's what my coach used to say. It's got to burn or it's not working. There was some real gain at the end of this thing, wasn't there? This jailer is saved. His entire household, it says, believes on the Lord Jesus and is saved. But the pain that it took to get there was very real. The pain that it took, the pain that Paul and Silas, the price they paid was very real to get to that moment. There is glory in pain. Why do we always assume that the Christian witness will be a cakewalk? Is it because of what we've heard on TV? Is it because of the, you know, uplifting, motivating books we read? I don't know. But Jesus said that there will be pain and suffering in this life. And if they persecuted him, that they're going to persecute us. And we talk about that often. But sometimes uh, even I feel like I want things to come very easily for me. And look at the price that was paid. That in their moment of, of darkness, in the midnight hour, instead of whining and complaining Instead of all the other junk that they could have done, they sing praises to God. They sing praises to God, not expecting a miracle. There's nowhere in this text that says they expected God to break those chains. They didn't care about the outcome. They didn't care that if they were fixing to lose their lives, then they were going to lose their lives for the sake of the gospel. That was their praise. That was their praise, that God, I will consider myself 
I will consider myself unworthy towards you. And if I have to die to get there, then that's what's going to happen. God will receive glory out of pain. Look at what, look at what Paul later says in the book of 2 Corinthians. This is his life as he's laying it out, everything that he's been through. 2 Corinthians eleven twenty four through 27, he says, Five times I received the 40 lashes minus one from the Jews. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I received a stoning. Three times I was shipwrecked. I've spent a night and a day in the open sea. On frequent journeys, I faced dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my own people, dangers from Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers at sea, and dangers among false brothers, toil and hardship, many sleepless nights, hunger and thirst, often without food, cold, and without clothing. Paul knew a thing or two about pain. Paul knew a thing or two about suffering, but we're reading of a life that was spent in, in, in pursuit of the Lord Jesus Christ. And no matter the pain and suffering, the song was always worship. This isn't Paul complaining here. This, this is him explaining the price that has been paid for the gospel to go out. This is Paul saying that if I want to glorify God and if I want to see people saved and if I want to witness and if I want to make disciples and I want to see the work of God happen, then it's going to take some difficult times. And, it's, and in those difficult times, that is when we show glory to God and people change. Amen? Listen, if the world could handle their own problems, then why do they need God? But they cannot. They cannot. And neither can we. And in our times of difficulty and in the darkest hour when we feel ourselves out of despair and desperate, and these desperate times call for desperate measures, right? Desperate times of our life call for desperate measures of worship to the almighty God because no matter the outcome, he will receive the glory. He will receive the honor. And Paul knew this. What's the price we're paying this morning? Maybe, maybe you're going through a really tough season. I know there are a lot of people out there right now who are. Times are tough. Times are real tough. There's a time of uncertainty out there right now like never before. And are we willing to worship despite our circumstances? Are we willing to allow God to use us in our circumstances to ultimately glorify him while the world is watching. Listen, church, God does not want to leave you in despair, okay? This is not a sermon of, you know, God's going to beat you down and you're going to stay down and, you know, that's the way we need to live our life. That's not what I'm saying here. But in your time of despair, God wants you to choose to worship him in a way that the outcome doesn't matter because he needs to be glorified either way. He needs to be glorified either way. Maybe you're going through something this morning that you can't see your way out of. Worship God anyways. Worship God anyways. Maybe there's a situation where you know you can't get yourself out of. Worship God anyways, because that's what we have been called to do.
Desperate times call for desperate measures. I believe we're in the most desperate times ever. And our worship to God now, our worship to God now will show the world his glory later. Notice I didn't say our protest. Right? I didn't say you standing up for what you think is right. No, 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 no. Our worship to a holy God is what is going to change our circumstance. That's the only thing that can. Every head bowed, every eye closed. I want us to think about this this morning that God is, God is a God of encouragement. That your, your dark times and whatever we're going through, my dark times, God wants to encourage you this morning that you are not left alone. That your hope can be in him this morning. That it's a surrender. That it's a surrender. That we can come to God boldly through the throne room of grace, Paul says, because of the work that Jesus Christ did. Are we doing that this morning? Maybe you're out of work. Maybe your marriage is in the dumps. Maybe you're sick. Are we worshiping God and glorifying him no matter the outcome? Because that's what he calls us to do at the midnight hour. That's what he calls us to do. Father, we come before you this morning, God, and we just want to thank you. We want to thank you for the opportunity we have to place our hope and our trust in you, God, that we don't have to rely on our own strength, that we don't have to rely on our own ability to move this process forward, God, but that we can put our hope and we can put our trust in the one who has already conquered the world, who has already defeated death. That is you, Jesus that we can put our hope and our faith in you no matter the outcome, God, no matter what we think is going to happen later, Father. I pray that our worship this morning would be totally sold out to you, God, that we would leave everything at these altars right here and that, and that we would use this as a wasteland to undump everything that is holding us down, all the barriers in our hearts, God. I pray that we would leave them here this morning and worship you for who you are in this midnight hour. Help us to do that in spirit and in truth this morning. It's in Jesus' mighty name that we pray. Thank you so much for listening today. And we always welcome you to join us at Fellowship Baptist Church in Nederland, Texas, where we gather, grow, give, and go.